0: It's 9am in the morning and I just woke up and I tend to have really weird dreams. I definitely woke up last night and started like saying
1: something that I cannot remember what was stressing me out so I can't dwell on the fact that I woke up because there's no point in trying to access the thoughts. That's what I'm grateful for at 9am right now.
0: What you just heard is a clip from an audio piece that I worked on last year, before the pandemic. The idea of the project was to track a day through moments of gratitude. For one whole day, I recorded myself every hour talking about what had given me joy, made me laugh, or caused me to smile since the last recording. Recently, I re-listened to it. Um... Hi. So it's twelve a.m. right it now. It is currently nine it's twenty-one p.m. It is p.m. It is one fifty-six p.m. So right it's now. It's currently twelve fifty-two. Uh, so it's okay, 52. it's um seven o one p.m. right now. A day of gratitude. <laughs> In the piece, there are sweet moments. So it's currently twelve fifty-two. My friend had kind of a rough weekend. Just something just kind of happened and made her feel sort of unsafe in her own dorm. She said she wasn't getting a lot of sleep and asked if she could stay in our dorm um, with me and my roommate. And obviously, I don't like the fact that she doesn't feel safe. I do feel grateful that our room can be seen as somewhere safe for the people we love and are grateful for in our life. There are funny moments, too. 1.56 PM right now, we were um, workshopping. a couple of people's essays for this particular assignment and one guy <laughs> introduced his comment to an essay by saying you know this might be too profound but and i don't know why but like that just really cracked me up everyone was kind of laughing and he didn't seem to understand why it was funny food is featured heavily it is currently two fifty three pm today was egg roll day at the ratty and it was so good it was so crispy and fried and rolled I loved it, and it was even better because I got some tofu to eat while I was standing in line for the egg rolls, and then I choked on said tofu, and it was really embarrassing because I was trying not to cough, but, like, I really wanted egg rolls, so I didn't want to get out of line to get water, but finally I caved. Yes, so getting the um, egg rolls felt like a victory um, because I went through that struggle with the tofu. Okay, it's um, 7.01 p.m. right now. And we're about to watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I'm really excited about. Are you guys excited?
2: Yes. We are so excited.
0: (laughs) They are really excited. Um, And we just snuck in about like five pounds of ice cream, cereal, and chocolate to eat. And almost all of us made it through with our food, (laughs) so that was really exciting. And sometimes the smallest moments feel the most impactful as I was walking back I saw this really cute dog like it was clearly a puppy and it was with its owner and it was just walking across campus and it like jumped up and tried to take something from its owner's hand and also while I was watching this cute puppy um this guy walks past and you know how sometimes you can just like hear a snippet of someone's conversation as they go past you he was on the phone with someone and all I heard him say was I love you too And just like the combination of this like adorable little puppy and then this person just walking by me really not knowing what they were saying at all other than I love you too. I don't know, that just made me really happy. But what really struck me when I first re-listened was that it felt like a dream, so distant from my current reality. The idea of being in a crowded movie theater, having face-to-face conversations with people or even sitting down to eat a meal in a booth at the dining hall, seemed entirely out of reach. It felt like the pandemic had shifted my standards of gratitude. But then, I re-listened to my recording some more. And as I did, I started to find more stability and consistency. Sure, the context had changed, but much of what I was grateful for remained unshakable. My love for my friends, my deep and unending appreciation for egg rolls, and my interest in connecting with other people. In fact, if anything, I am now more grateful because I don't take those things for granted anymore. This process of re-listening got me thinking. How can we look at what we have and reframe it? Not in a way that undermines the loss or the tragedies, but in a way that works to embrace what we still have, the points of consistency between universes, memories, moments, and people. This is a show about digging through the archived past to see what ways in which it might inform a sense of healing, reflection, or repair in the present. I hope you'll stay with me and listen for a little while. My name is Lucy Jones. I'm a member of Now Hear This, a student audio storytelling collective based out of Brown University and Rhode Island School of Design. You're listening to Unearthed.
3: This is what my mother taught me. We're all keepers of our own fire. We need to be tended and fed and loved so that we may be warm and warm others. Sometimes people whose fires are not burning as bright as ours may come to you for your energy and your warmth. And as a firekeeper, you should share your warmth and tell that person when sometimes they need to feed their own fire somewhere else what you feed grows and whether at any moment of any day you have a bonfire or just have embers, we have to remember to tend to our own flames. So my mother taught me to place my feet strongly and firmly on the ground and to square my shoulders and to sit heavily into my body. I close my eyes and I feel the roots in my feet reach towards the earth. I thank my creator, Nakatani, for today. And I stretch out my awareness of my body and my spirit and my history, calling to my ancestors, asking them to enter my space. I reach to them to honor them and to receive their guidance and their love. And I imagine them wrapping around me and enveloping me within me as well. I use my breaths to cleanse and to expel all the heaviness that's stuck to my body and my mind like dusting away sand. I try to send love to all the parts of my body where I hold my pain and my oppression like in my shoulders my stomach and my hips. Each time I breathe in I imagine my fire getting a little bigger as my ancestors and I gather around it. When I open my eyes and reoccupy my space I feel cleaner and calmer, more
4: balanced and not alone. I associate life force with maybe an openness to healing and not just survival, but of a desire to survive, of thriving, of holding my survival in tandem with my trauma, which I'm not sure I'll ever be without but in being able to heal in ways that can make me feel whole even when I still hold traumas and that's a life force to me um, and to have moments or days when the center of my body is not in my trauma um, I think that that's what it might look like to let a life force into my body, to still hold my pain and my trauma there where it is and accept it for its state and its healing, but for the moments in which the root of my body is grounded, not in pain and not in trauma, but in something else, in my survival, in my hope, in my love, in my being alive, that's a life force.
3: I think oppression is the pit in your stomach when your experience the experience that you're allowed to have is something different than the experience that others are allowed to have because of your shape or size or ethnicity race, sexual orientation gender and I think it's that hollowness that feels like you yourself are not allowed to exist in this world because this world is forcing you into an expectation or a story that it's already written for you. And like that pit feels like a violation, that oppression feels um, dehumanizing. I think when I think of oppression, I think of it
5: as like Um, knowing that there's a sun but constantly being followed by a cloud so you can't see it it's the type of thing where it's like you know that joy exists but there's something preventing you from being able to access it um it would be really bitter it would be heavy definitely heavy
1: really heavy (laughs) I scheduled a time for me to cry every day. So I was like, okay, Friday, it's going to be 4 p.m. And Saturday, I'm going to do it at 11 a.m. So I would walk down onto the grass and sit by the river and stare at it and cry. And it wasn't sad crying and it wasn't happy crying. It was just kind of like a really essential and cathartic experience and it was really important to me Um, and it would even if I was feeling super happy that day I just made sure that I had my moment with myself to go and kind of check in and I would do that through crying. These are just some of the things that I tell myself.
4: This is just a reminder that you are radiant and gentle and fierce and smart and deserve much more than this moment.
5: I am not defined by my wounds, and I will allow myself to grow and heal. I am capable, I am
1: strong, and I am enough. It's not selfish to ask for help, and you're not taking away from anyone else's energy by asking for what you need, um, and like you deserve it. like You deserve to feel supported and
4: secure. Healing comes in waves, and maybe today the wave hits the rocks, And that's okay, that's okay darling. You are still healing, you are still healing. This is how I
5: remember to see each day as a gift.
4: I I keep a list on my phone of
5: all of the great things that um, happens um, throughout the day. And so sometimes it'll be like my outfit or (laughs) sometimes it'll be that um, I, I had the courage to ask a question in class. Which is something that I don't typically do because I'm just I'm afraid to feel stupid, mm-hmm. um, and I also I'm I feel really um, grateful when I hear good things happening to people that I love. So every time. Um, I text my mom or my sister, and I ask them how their day is going. And if they tell me that something good has happened, I'll write it in my phone. So at the end of the day, before I go to bed, I'll just read all these marvelous things that happened to me, and I'll just be so happy. And then I'll go to sleep happy and wake up happy. That's another important thing, going to sleep happy and waking up happy. If I wake up happy, I'm so so thankful for that.
2: A lot of recovery was going to be me reparenting myself and being like my own mother in this case. And that has been an image that like was really confusing at the beginning. But has become very reassuring. It feels like I'm almost taking care of one side of me, like the side that's more capable, like goes and like cooks a meal and feeds the other side that's like not strong enough to do it. What I like to think of is this image of when you're a kid and they put you in the bathtub um, so you can imagine yourself alone or with a sibling or someone you love who you share pure joy and love for. Um, So imagine yourself just naked in the bathtub and the water is warm and there's soap and smells like lavender or whatever other smell you prefer. And imagine yourself just like floating there and yourself as well on another side cleaning yourself, like washing your hair and washing your body and do that work for yourself while also relaxing and feeling like you're receiving it from someone else. Because I think that's what self-care is like. Like recognizing your weakness and being strong enough to provide care. To so being like your own mother when you're a kid and you take a bath. I think people see uh, healing
3: and medicine oftentimes as selfish, and I think that that's really dangerous. I, in life, carry a lot of people. Um, I ask to carry a lot of people, but if you can't maintain yourself, if you can't defend your own happiness and your own joy then you can't sustain Um, and that's a really difficult thing to hear and understand and really prioritize but being being a being of radical joy and love and compassion is such a revolt against this world that wasn't created us that wasn't created for women of color or of marginalized identities and to celebrate yourself and all the beauty and wisdom that you and your ancestors hold is such a revolution
0: that was healing meditations by Danya torbion and it was produced in 2018 If I told you that you had to spend a whole day alone with your own thoughts, how would you feel? Does it scare you to be by yourself? Quarantine has often created a sense of loneliness in me, a form of isolation that produces unique mental whirling. That special kind of anxiety when you hear that other people have figured out ways to spend their time, and you're just sitting alone on the couch watching The Great British Baking Show on Netflix. But I digress. Now, we enter the world of an extrovert, trying her very hardest to be alone. This is a story about reprogramming as a form of healing, reprogramming in the ways we see ourselves in relation to the people and world around us. Spoiler alert, it doesn't go as planned.
6: I don't know how to be alone. Maybe that's dramatic, but I'm convinced it's true. Meals alone are out of the question. Weekend nights are people time. And then there are the other, smaller times I can't spend by myself, the open spaces in a day. Half an hour between lunch and my doctor's appointment, that's just enough time to grab tea with my best friend and rant about a bad workout. Studying every weekend, I'm clustered around a table sharing stress with whoever can make it. Even on walks or bus rides between plans, I call my mom to catch up, tell her where I'm going. I recruit friends to share runs, errands, 20-minute link-ups if we can find 20 minutes. My friends know me for my motto, do it for the debrief. People say you're an introvert if you get your energy from spending time alone an extrovert if you get your energy from other people. For most people I know, this is a spectrum. But by this definition, I'm an extreme extrovert. My energy depends on other people. And yet, chances are, I'm not gonna be surrounded by people all my life. It's hard to imagine, but eventually, meal plan will end. Noon lunch could happen alone at the kitchen counter, not packed around a dining hall booth. My weekends won't remain a blur of campus destinations. My nights won't always end in debrief. Maybe I'll live alone sometime. College won't last forever. So I started investigating alone time the only way I know, talking to people. A few summers ago, my friend Ilana spent 24 hours alone in the woods, totally alone. This is crazy to me. At Ilana's sleepaway camp, everyone spent three hours alone in the woods with only a journal, a towel, and bug spray. Hardcore counselors stuck it out for a whole day. Ilana wanted to be one of them.
0: I'd heard of other people doing a thing where they did it for 24 hours, and I was like, wow, that sounds intense and wonderful. Maybe I want to try it. I assumed
6: Ilana loved her day in the woods. Maybe that's because, to me, Ilana is impressively independent, an adventurer. She treks across Providence to volunteer for political campaigns or cheer on her favorite bands, gets up at 6am to watch the sunrise the real deal. Either way, Ilana's twenty-four-hour retreat turned out different. It wasn't the cathartic
0: day she predicted. In retrospect, like if you ask me overall what I thought of the experience, like I would tell you I kind of really hated it actually.
6: Can you tell me just a rundown of how you spent those twenty-four hours, approximately? Yeah. Um, so I think it was around. Ilana like, entered 2 the woods around two p.m., set up a tent, and started to write. Her only activity was journaling, so she took her time, describing every detail. When the sun set, she made dinner and went to bed. Ilana actually struggled to remember how she passed the time until 2 p.m. the next day, but she says those last hours felt the longest.
1: I'd never really felt a kind of longing like that for like any single... like I didn't want a specific person to be with me, I just wanted a person as an like, abstract idea.
6: Her watch was buried in the bottom of her bag, so she could have checked the time, but she didn't. Ilana says that was the hardest, weirdest part, wanting it to be over without knowing how close she was. Those 24 hours changed the way Ilana thought about college. It made her realize she wants to spend her college years on the move, learning from people, not isolated in her dorm room. I asked Ilana, If I had to spend one hour completely alone here at college, how should I spend it? Perhaps something you could do is, oh my gosh,
1: sit in the Blue Room and don't talk to
6: anyone. The Blue Room is a loud, crowded campus eatery. Snagging a table is a feat. When my friend Camilla and I catch up over Blue Room muffins every Friday, We're constantly looking over our shoulders to make sure the person we're talking about isn't right there. You're never really alone at the Blue Room. So, I'm walking from the rock to the Blue Room, where I'm supposed to spend an hour alone, but... I can already tell it's gonna be more like 20 minutes because I made dinner plans. So I'm not doing a very good job. I also not in the mood to sit on my own and journal. I'm trying to think about what I'm gonna think about when I sit there. In honor of Ilana's day in the woods, I didn't bring any homework, and I wasn't allowed to use my phone. I found a seat, set a timer, took out my journal. But after what felt like a full hour, I couldn't sit still with myself any longer.
0: Okay, I just checked my phone. And it's
6: only been like six minutes, but I think I have to go. And that went pretty bad. So I don't know why, but I just felt so weird sitting there (laughs) and I couldn't think of anything to think about. Um, I had out my journal and so first I was brainstorming what I might wear when I go out tonight. So I wrote TN um, for tonight and then I brainstormed silky tank plus short shorts plus booties question mark. And I couldn't come up with any other options. So I guess that's what I'm wearing when I go out tonight and the last thing i wrote was sunset equals calming because i was sitting by a window and i was looking out at the sun setting but that definitely put me to sleep so i I tried to close my eyes because i kept yawning but then i definitely wasn't brave enough to nap in public like in the blue room on my own um and i got so antsy so then i had to check the time i can't believe that ilana did that for 24 hours in the woods I couldn't do it for more than seven minutes. I don't know why I'm so scared of being alone with my own thoughts, but I definitely am. Alone time didn't always scare me. When I was 12 or 13, just old enough to take myself out for dessert, I loved walking to cafes with a book and sitting there alone for hours. I don't remember getting restless or running away from my thoughts. I do remember thinking, this is what grown-ups do. Spending time alone felt too good to be true. My friend Nick coexists pretty smoothly with his own thoughts. Among friends, he's famous for alone time with organic chemistry. Nick calls his orgo problem sets self-care packets, and he isn't joking. He says problem sets anchor him alone when people time feels harder.
7: Stuff was going on between me and my girlfriend that was very stressful and kind of rough on me personally. And I remember kind of of one of the ways that I was kind of combating this was I would just, you know, like take an orgo problem set and just kind of like sit and do it by myself. When people first hear like, like, what, you like did an orgo problem set to calm you down. But like the reason that I found that it served that purpose is that it really just commanded all of my attention. And I was able to like take my focus away from this other part of my life that was really like causing me a lot of stress and just kind of focus on one thing at a time.
6: Nick is strategic about his alone time. He calls it personal growth and development so i asked nick how i should spend time alone
7: this is maybe a little bit cliche but i would probably go and get a coffee slash meal um and just like sit in the spot where i was getting the coffee slash meal um and either do work or like listen to my audiobook.
6: nick said i should take a walk after my meal he told me not to plan too much just get in the zone, listen to an audiobook, and enjoy the fall weather. I set a date, Friday, November 9th. When I told my mom about my alone time mission, she said an hour-long walk isn't enough to make a story. My friends agreed. So I decided to make it a five-mile hike. I didn't feel ready, but November 9th waited in my Google calendar. I kept reminding myself, people do this. Long walks alone, they're a thing. Maybe I needed a change of scenery for alone time to make sense. Then, the night before my hike, I started feeling bone-tired at 7 p.m. The next morning, I was bedridden with a stomach bug that lasted over a week. Instead of a five-mile hike, I spent Friday afternoon at the hospital. My friend Oscar texted me. I take it you're not going out tonight? Getting sick at college is a different kind of alone time than I was looking to learn. I've never been sick like this before. So dehydrated, I could barely walk on my own. Talking felt like work. Climbing in and out of my dorm bed became a core workout. Schoolwork was far away. Over the week, my side of the room became littered with anti-nausea meds, half-full juice cups, crumpled pajamas and enough crackers to last all year. I only remembered to record once, my first meal alone all semester. So I just took my first shower um, since Thursday, and it's Sunday. I'm about to go pick up some chicken noodle soup at the Rotti. Oh man, my skin is so dry.
0: I have to
6: wash my sheets. It got lonely. Too sick for weekend plans or study sessions. I can't really remember how 10 a.m. turned to 2 or 9 p.m. those days. Time moved even when I couldn't get out of bed. Of course, I wasn't totally alone. Friends swooped in like guardian angels, offering groceries and gossip. Caroline told stories while I slept. Malika dispensed health advice and fed me sips of Gatorade and at the hospital my closest friends Maddie and Reka sat with me for hours We debriefed about boys over two bags of IV fluid People time felt different though when I didn't have the energy to be an extrovert friends filled a different need comfort rest just being there Now that I'm well enough to fill my Google calendar again, I'm already thinking too hard about what's next. I haven't stopped getting energy from friends, longing for people, like Ilana said. Maybe I need something as dramatic as that virus to throw off my routine and give myself real time alone. Usually, my thoughts move in circles when I'm on my own, looping too fast for me to relax. When this happens, I don't feel like I know myself. I guess that's why I fill my days with people. Time is realer outside my own head. But alone with the virus, my thoughts slowed down. I could spend an hour eating crackers and taking deep breaths, or waiting for my stomach to calm down while I rested my head just right against the pillows. When schoolwork or relationships showed up in my head, I didn't feel scared. I didn't overthink. Like Nick's orgo problem sets, the stomach virus commanded all my attention. The debrief could wait. For once, while I was sick, real life rested at a distance. I don't miss the stomach flu, but I miss that.
0: That was Do It for the Debrief by Liza Edwards, and it was produced in 2018. While isolation can force us to reckon with parts of ourselves that we didn't know existed, our relationships with other people can also facilitate healing. Sometimes, the way we find comfort is in a stranger's particularly well-curated Spotify playlist, a of giggle with a longtime friend, or an impromptu Zoom call. And sometimes, to face the facts, all it takes is a hint of the blues.
8: When an ex-lover told me that a lot of 1930s blues singers were queers, lesbians, and dykes, I didn't believe her. I went to go fact check on Google to find out that it's true. The women who popularized the blues sung about and even acted upon a yearning for other women. But back then, I wasn't very into the blues. It felt like life was constantly moving too fast for me to sit and listen to this kind of music.
1: You know, I'm very busy right now. I have a lot of meetings, a lot of lunch plans.
8: People singing about their troubles over the swinging and swaying of brass, pianos, and harmonicas. The blues didn't really feel like something I could lean into. Since then, I've come out to my parents, only to be met with months of silence. Are you gay?
9: No, 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 no. Uh, Maybe?
8: And later, I found out that this ex-lover had cheated on me throughout our relationship. Now, usually, I have a tendency to rationalize my emotions. If I can sit down and talk with a friend about why there's no reason to be sad about a certain situation, then I'm usually able to move on pretty quickly. But in the past few months, I found myself in a sadness that I couldn't quickly process myself out of. A sadness where there's been nothing to do except to sit with my feelings. And it's with that that I've realized I've got time for the blues. Ma Rainey, the mother of the blues, she was born into an impoverished family in the deep South in 1886. Her music embodies the struggle of being Black and living in the decades following emancipation. It sounds cliche, but at first listen, it really feels like the music my grandparents could have listened to while living in the South. But when you listen a little closer, you realize that she's talking about running in packs of women because she doesn't like no men, or how she always needs to know where her girl is. It's
5: nice with a crowd of my friends, Been women, I don't like no men. It's
8: too- Ma Rainey expressed her queerness and her music throughout her career, something only a few mainstream artists are doing today. But I can't help but wonder, when Rainey's music played on the radio, did anybody notice? Did they just not care? Regardless, Rainey's music is fully honest, self-aware, the type of honesty you face when you've reached a certain point that sugarcoating things doesn't really do you any good. Her music is so intimate it feels like a gift, it sits, lingers in your chest, has you wanting to lay back and swing your head, all while questioning what you were trying to forget and getting so drunk this past weekend.
6: They don't mean me no good.
8: Bessie Smith, nicknamed the Empress of the Blues, was one of the highest-paid musical artists of the 1920s and 30s. She started out as one of Ma Rainey's dancers, but after Ma took her under her wing, she worked her way up to form her own solo career. In her music, Smith sang lyrics that referenced her unapologetic queerness and bisexuality, like these lines from the song Tain't Nobody Business If I Do. If I, if I... To take a notion, to jump in to the ocean. Take nobody's
1: business if I do.
8: Rainey taught Smith what she knew about being a famous musical artist and had an influence on her sound and performance style. Some say that Rainey also introduced Smith to the idea of hooking up with other women, and it's rumored that they might have actually had a love affair themselves. I can't help but imagine what Smith and Rainey's relationship would have been like. A relationship that blurred the boundaries between friend and lover. And when I hear Rainey or Smith singing about their queerness, I feel a type of closeness to them that I don't necessarily feel with all other music. I feel as though they're passing along a secret hidden in plain sight. Like, maybe they're not shouting about how they love women, you know, like not making a big point of it, but that it is and that it's there. Like, they're sitting in my bed right next to me and they lean over and whisper, we've We've always been been
5: here.
9: here.
8: That's Jamila and Kaylee. They're a black queer couple that I've gotten to know as both sexual partners and friends over the past couple months. We're cuddling in their bed, my head is in Jamila's lap while she's twisting her hair, Kaylee on the other side of us, and we're talking about black queer relationships, maybe like Rainey and Smith that blur the boundaries between friendship, care, and hooking up.
9: I think specifically for me i've it's taken me so long to not only like identify as like a black woman but like a like a beautiful black woman who like can use my body. And, like, use it with other people who I don't, like, really know. And I'm not about to just, like, give up those relationships and just, like, really rock them away and be like, that's fine, like, we just hooked up once, like, whatever. You gonna be my friend, I'm gonna be, like, showing you my body like this. And if if that's what you want. Like, I'm not gonna force you to be like, we have to go get dinner after, because that's just, uh, like, way too aggressive than what I could ever produce, so... But yeah, I think it is important for me to keep those relationships because I have shown so much of myself. Especially like I come off as like such a like dom top like I do like to get fucks.
8: Full bottom. I'm not
9: a bottom. <laughs> I'm a burst. Okay, you're a burst.
8: You're a burst. That's I'm burst. true. That's true. You're absolutely. Sometimes, she be sometimes you give some bottom energy. Mm-hmm. It that's like.
9: I
10: know. And like. Sometimes you give full bottom energy. Hush. Yeah. <laughs> full top energy. And that's it's the, the power beauty of
5: the, of the power verse. verse. It's the power of the power verse. <laughs>
9: <laughs> so I feel like a lot of people definitely see me as this like for lack of a better term like dyke and like if i'm gonna expose like my bottom side to you then i'm probably gonna want to keep up
2: stay away from me all come in my sin bessie
8: smith along with having an alleged affair with Rainey, was also pretty open about having sex with her dancers on tour, even in knowing that she'd have to answer to her abusive husbands for doing so. But even with this, Bessie Smith's voice rings clear. She moans, but she doesn't stutter. She sounds sure of herself when she's singing about her loneliness, about facing domestic violence, about how she loves gin more than anything else. She sings about things that would be hard to tell someone while looking into their eyes. Words that you might choke on. Stories that would be too heavy or too big to put on someone else. So she let them ring true in a song for everyone to hear. For everyone to consume. I wonder if in her music she felt free.
2: If this place is radiant, it's me and my follow me, just how it's done, and have
8: you... In her music, there's an assertiveness, but also a longing, a duality that's in a lot of Black music, reminding me of the songs my mom would sing at church on Sunday, where she would sing about hoping for something better, sometimes in the form of God or salvation. The blues struck a note with a Black American experience, an outsider existence as a second-class citizen. But when I listen to Bessie Smith, I can't help but feel as though this sadness has to do with not only being Black, but with being a Black queer woman. Black queer woman's blues.
10: I think it's mostly the duality of it, the, like, ways that you have to, like, contort yourself and the way that you're just, like, made to be self-aware, like, at all times. Um, uh, just
9: being othered in social spaces, uh, like, even in my family, to be honest, um... Because I like I was adopted, my parents adopted like six other black t- children and they were both white and had two of their own white children. And just one of my eldest siblings, like just being like racist and then going to a predominantly white school for like my whole life. And then coming out, but not even having the chance to come out, I think because everyone, like I said, like the way I dress and like how I present myself, everyone was like, oh my God, she gay. And it's something that I couldn't hide. I'm not saying that I wanted to because I I guess that's who I am at my core, but not being able to hide my blackness and not being able to hide my queerness definitely resonates in a similar vein to me. And it's, it's been something that I've been experiencing ever since I think I was like maybe even since, as young as six so I feel like that is one of the reasons why it's a very uh, similar feeling to me I, I don't want no man that I got to give my money to I Owe me a leather Never
8: but a no. Gladys Bentley was born in Philadelphia in 1907. She left home when she was 16 and would eventually wind up in New York. She joins in on the artistic movement of the Harlem Renaissance, where she came into her identity as a bull dagger and a gender nonconforming lesbian. And in Harlem, she was alongside other black queer artists of the time, like Alan Locke, Langston Hughes, and Alice Dunbar Nelson. Bentley's music is like a show tunesy parody of the blues. Sometimes she would pitch her deep voice up in a mocking tone that makes me laugh. Her career as a performer really took off when a gay speakeasy called Harry Hansberry's Clam House needed a male pianist. She went into the audition, dressed up in what would become her signature white tux with oxfords and a top hat, and she got the job. Accompanied by a stage of drag queens, during her performances she would go out and flirt with women in the audience while singing. I haven't been able to find any videos of Bentley performing in her tux, but I'd like to imagine her, suavely walking from the stage into the audience at a club or speakeasy. She's singing while gripping the lapels of her suit jacket, walking, elegantly gliding, and maybe she reaches out and touches the hand of a woman in the audience that she finds beautiful. Probably with that woman's husband standing right there.
9: <laughs>
8: Bentley had a big impact on Harlem's nightlife. She'd perform at clubs, speakeasies, and rent parties where how would get passed around to help out with the host's friends. Parties like these were thrown by Harlem Renaissance socialites like Alilia Walker, and these parties became somewhat of a safe haven for the Black gays and lesbians of the time. A place for mingling, but also a place to explore each other's bodies. Now, during a time when homosexuality was illegal, and Black homosexuality was extra illegal, there were consequences for attending queer Harlem Renaissance parties. Rainey was arrested at one of these types of parties, only to be later bailed out by Smith. And... In this persecution that Black queers and Black women have faced, I'm not really surprised that the blues were popularized by Black queer women. There's a sadness in being Black and queer, a sadness that doesn't quite shake, sometimes a sadness that you just have to sit in, but there's also something to celebrate in Black queer relationships.
10: Back when I got back from Cuba... I'm really such a study abroad narrative bitch. I want to die. Anyways, (laughs) so I was just wicked depressed. And I was like, you know, maybe this isn't a healthy coping mechanism. But I'm gonna go on Tinder. Like, uh uh-uh, uh-uh, uh And I met all these amazing black women, including you, my current girlfriend. And I think it was great in the sense that, like, just seeing all of these modes of being that are so familiar, but, like, also so not you at all. (laughs) Um, It was just really, really good. And just the amount of the lack of anxiety of, like, understanding, like, not lack of understanding, but lack of anxiety that you will be understood. It was just really nice. Yeah, interestingly, I didn't have the anxiety of, like, is this person gonna ghost me like, oh my god, are there so like it it just kind of felt very natural and the fact that I'm still in some sphere of like appreciation and friendship for all of them. So I think that's just another flip side of the coin of like all this fuckery. <laughs> um, is all the beautiful
4: relationships that I get to have.
10: <laughs> now
8: In the past few months, when I've gotten sad or just bored, I like to imagine what it would be like at one of these Black queer parties. Not necessarily in the past, in the present, or even in the future for that matter, but just a room or maybe a house of Black queer people mingling. The light is calm and there's music. A house full of Black queer bodies dancing in and out of consensual touch and play and no one's glass is ever empty a house full of all kinds of black queer bodies bodies that have been told they don't quite fit bodies like bessie's like ma's like Gladys's that command space in spite of this black queer people alive breathing there's laughing we're laughing (laughs) Celebrating what it means to be in community with one another. A house where everyone has enough.
0: That story is called Blues Queens, and it was produced by Clear Waters in 2018. In this last piece, we come back to the idea of consistency. When life is in flux, often all we want to do is go back in time to reaffirm our understanding of the present. I understand that. I listen to the small moments of gratitude I recorded to remind myself that I am essentially unchanged that I am a whole person in both the world of the pandemic and the world before it. Memory is so intimately tied to our identity, the firmness with which we can hold on to ourselves. In this piece, an old family photo and the search for queer childhood are at the heart of one person's quest for consistency and their grappling with the complications that emerge.
11: My name is Mika. Um, I. That's all. <laughs> It's a photo of me and my brother, my little brother. Um, I am, I would guess maybe five or six in the photo and which would put him at three or four. Um, and we're standing in the woods facing the camera with these, um, like funny elastic waistband cargo shorts and, um, no shirts. We both have these, like, matching, um, very, like, blonde, sun-bleached bowl cuts. I came across the photo again just a couple years ago. I can't remember exactly where I came across it. It must have been just looking through some sort of photo albums, which I do sometimes when I'm home, and I sent it out to a bunch of my friends, and I was like, this is me. (laughs) I think it was at a point in my life where I was coming into a queer identity and like struggling with the fact of feeling like I couldn't trace a clear like stable identity of gayness for myself and my own like understanding of my life um, from when I was a kid to now um and was feeling like I was just realizing that all the things that I had wanted for a lot of years um were maybe not actually things that I wanted (laughs) in terms of like a straight stable monogamous relationship um and that was sort of the, the crisis of simultaneously feeling like if I if I only have wanted this for all these years because it's what I'm supposed to want and I don't want it, but then I also don't have any other like stable desires or can continue continuous wants and um identities that I can like nail down for myself then like oh, who am I? <laughs> like what like how do I ever figure out who I am I found it, like, a very comforting photo to feel like that there is something, some, like, aspect of how I relate to my gender identity now that has, like, carried over from when I was a kid before I would ever, like, that there is some sort of continuity there. The impetus for looking back at at all these photos of childhood was to, like, kind of re-inhabit those memories and, like, re-inscribe how I was then as like its own sort of proto-queerness. My sister and I were like total tomboys for a long time and that sort of friction with femininity is something I still feel for sure. There's a period where when I was in my tomboy phase, I would dress, my sister and I would dress my brother in, like, the dresses that were too girly for us, um, and, like, put makeup on him and paint his nails and, um, like, clip his hair back and, like, record him doing, like, runway walks <laughs> across the living room. So it was, recordings or photos no longer exist for whatever reason. Um, mm-hmm. At some point they were erased. Um, and I have a memory of my mom talking about how it was because she didn't want my brother to be embarrassed when he got older by that those photos. Um, which, I don't know if that that's how I remember it and not how my sister remembers it. Um, And I haven't talked to my mom about it. That sort of memory of sort of gender experimentation that was then, that didn't make it into the photo archive, became this project of thinking about how we, how, like, siblings, hold each other through all of our different iterations of self. There's this quote by Sarah Davidman where she's talking about how all of the photos that, like, the photos that are omitted from family photo albums are, like, the awkward ones or the, um, all the ones essentially that are queer, that are, like, show any evidence of queerness because, um, doesn't fit with the narrative. There was always a certain, amount of space in my family to like trouble the boundaries of, of girlhood in a way that there wasn't space to trouble the boundaries of boyhood. Um, and that it was fine for me and my sister to be running around in like cargo shorts from the the boys section of the gap and no shirts and, and like rolling around in the dirt. And that was fine, but it was not as fine for my brother to be wearing a dress even in like the confines of our own home but I think now I'm I the sort of the way I think about it is changing because I feel like the idea of being able to like unearth uh, like proto-gayness <laughs> is for me not the right way to think about it um and I don't know I think what I've the conclusions I'm coming to are like there's no like that all kids are queer because the um the desires that we have as kids are so unstable and complicated. I like these photos because I think there's something so sweet about the like pride that we are taking in our own like little kid bodies of like just like totally shameless. Um it's like almost a confrontational pose but like so not oriented towards confrontation because I don't even know that there's anything to confront. This yeah.
7: Like looking at it.
0: This piece is called proto and it was produced by Mitchell Johnson in 2017. A day or two ago, in preparation for this episode, I listened to the gratitude piece one more time. Every time I listen, I notice something new. This time, it was the voices. The indistinguishable, muffled voices in the back of the recording as I walked to class, The voice of my roommate as we giggled about something related to either food or a random fact about sheep. Even my own voice and the way it changed as I inhabited different spaces. I like to hear all of them, with their different tones and inflections. The sound of another person's voice is a comfort in and of itself. It's inherently connective. It's undeniably human. At the very least, this was a show of voices. Voices of comfort. Voices of connection. Voices of community. I hope you found in them some kind of healing or humanness. Some kind of lovely inflection or satisfying muffle. Listening is something we all do. Sometimes, it's all we can do. The songs used in today's show were Mr. Mole and Son, Turning to You, 15th Street, Sunday Lights, Bangalette, and Doghouse, all by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Lucy Jones. You've been listening to Unearthed from Now Hear This. Stay tuned.